Welcome to Inside the Media Minds. This is your host, Christine Blake. This show features in-depth interviews with tech reporters who share everything from their biggest pet peeves to their favorite stories. From our studio at W2 Communications, let's go Inside the Media Minds. everyone, this is Christine Blake, the host of Inside the Media Minds, and today we have a special co-host joining this podcast episode, Jason Worden, the VP of Public Sector here at W2 Communications and my colleague. So welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me, Christine. Coming on. Yeah, and I know we're both thrilled to have Justin Doubleday as our guest on the podcast. He is a reporter at Federal News Network. So thank you, Justin, for coming and joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're excited to chat with you, talk a little bit about your background, how you got into the industry, and some of those current hot topics in the public sector space. Um, so let's start out with just how about you provide us a quick overview of your background? And I know you worked at Inside Defense and then made your way over to Fed News Network. So love to hear about that journey. Yeah. So I've been reporting in DC for almost a decade now, since uh, fall of 2013. Uh, I I came down here after I graduated for an internship that fall with the Chronicle of Higher Education, uh, which is a a great publication. It was a great internship and introduction to DC and uh, really professional journalism and and how that all works. And uh, after that internship, I stuck around and freelanced for a while in DC and eventually found a job at Inside Defense in the summer of 2014. And for folks who aren't aware, Inside Defense kind of covers the, in the weeds of the Defense Department policy programs world, acquisition, you know, big weapon systems and what's going on there with their development, with testing, with cost overruns and things like that. And again, that was a a great introduction uh, to how kind of the different branches of government work, of course, especially, um, you know, within the federal, uh, within the executive branch, how agencies budget and program and things like that. And then uh, covering Congress, covering the NDAA every year. So I covered the army for a couple of years, then I covered the Navy for a couple of years. And then I moved over to the Pentagon wide beat at Inside Defense, kind of covering emerging tech and things like that. And I was there for a total of seven years. And then in 2021, I moved over to Federal News Network, and that's where I've been ever since. Wow, that's quite a, a journey. And I know seven years at Anywhere is a, a long time these days. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. tell us about your role at Federal News Network. What are some of the topics that you cover there, and how do you approach those topics? Sure. So, you know, I'm, I'm a reporter there. There's uh, just, just a handful of us really actually on the kind of editorial and reporting staff at Federal News Network. And uh, I specifically cover cybersecurity, homeland security, the intelligence community um, as kind of my big focuses there. But we all kind of share in covering different things, whether that's federal technology developments at different agencies workforce developments. Um, I have some niche interests in things like federal records management hmm. and digital identity. Um, so th- it's kind of interesting. The It's kind of like wildfire smoke. You get blown around a little bit and then you, uh, <laughs> and you d- end up covering different things you didn't initially expect. But um, 
yeah, I, I kind of approach it from those different uh, focuses, but every week it's different. It's something different. Yeah. That definitely keeps it exciting. I'm sure. Yeah, it does. I, I, I learn something new every week. I talk to someone new almost every single week. And I, I really like uh, kind of being able to dive into the weeds of, of what different agencies are working on, the challenges they're facing and, and the like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know we're going to dig into some of those hot topics of things that you've been covering, but I'm just curious, like, you know, in, in all of your experience at Inside Defense and Federal News Network, what has been one of your most memorable stories that you've written or topics that you've covered? Ooh, uh, that's, that's a great question. You know, it's, th there's, there's topics that are really fascinating. Um, and, and some, one of them is just the security clearance process. And I actually started covering that at inside defense and have carried that over to federal news network. And, and, and just this whole idea that there's this whole kind of separate cleared workforce that are under different rules, mm -hmm. uh, you know, have to meet these different requirements, have these constraints. Um, you know, there's the whole process of clearing people that is a huge barrier to federal employment and agencies recruiting folks and things like that. I think that's just a fascinating topic. Yeah. One of the coolest reporting experiences I ever have done uh, is getting to go out to a naval aircraft carrier and cover uh, cover sea trials for the F-35 uh, B jet um, back when I was covering the Navy at Inside Defense, you know, got to take the, the I think it's the C-2 uh, Greyhound plane out to a ship off the coast of Virginia, um, off to a, an aircraft carrier off the coast of Virginia and, and see that in action. That was pretty crazy, uh, pr pretty cool reporting experience wow. um, as a as a young reporter. Yeah, I guess so. That's super cool. Yeah, so I mean, uh, th those are those are some of the highlights. I mean, I, I, I I'm kind of a, a nerd about different like <laughs> policies and things. You have you have to be a little bit in this space yeah. um, to stay engaged. Um, I really am uh, interested in the open source intelligence um, mm -hmm. kind of storyline today. That's really emerged out of the Ukraine conflict and this whole idea that you know, intel U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, probably need to do a better job of taking advantage of open source intelligence. Um, they're no longer kind of the the sole player in the game when it comes to gathering, you know, satellite intelligence, obviously, and, and things like that. Um, the internet has really created a, a lot of um, uh, of intelligence and questions about how the intelligence community can, you know, use that, take advantage of it, um, you know while still, you know, maintaining privacy and, and, and mm -hmm. complying with U.S. laws. So I think that's another big, uh, really interesting topic that I'm interested in today. Mm -hmm. Speaking of those interesting topics, each week, Christine takes members of the media like yourself inside their media mind. How about you and I take it a bit further inside the Beltway here? What are those key topics that you're covering or that you really think your readers need to be in the know about? I think... Um, one of the big ones that's obviously emerged over the last you know, six months is generative AI and how agencies are approaching that topic. And it's a tough one to get details on because like every organization on the face of the earth, federal agencies are still struggling to come up with their own policies around how they use things like chat GPT and, and, and similar, um, you know, large language models. 
I think you've seen legislation come out on the Hill recently uh, to start to look at that. I, uh, the folks that I'm talking to a lot in federal agencies are thinking about it, have started different policy development teams and things like that. Um, but it's a big open question. I think it's going to be one of the big ones uh, here in Washington, obviously, for the next for, for the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. really. Absolutely. And cybersecurity is, yeah. you know, just the constant, uh, you know, sort of uh story that the, the the never-ending story the story that keeps on giving um in federal government every, there's there's just new attack vectors new threats that pop up every week agencies are, are struggling with legacy tech um to kind of you know modernize that so that they can do things like multi-factor authentication um they struggle with policies and funding to to, to kind of upgrade their secure secure um defenses. And so I think that's one workforce, I think is mm-hmm. another big piece that gets lost in that security conversation, cybersecurity conversation, Absolutely. you know, recruiting and retention is such a challenge for agencies when they're going up against companies that can offer double the salary, but there's a lot going on in that space too, with, uh, you know, different solutions to kind of solve that problem. So that's kind of an essential storyline for me, um, mm-hmm. going forward. Talking, let's talk, take both those a bit further. On the AI front, just as the as of the week of our recording this conversation, mm-hmm. two new bills were introduced on the Hill. Where do you see this going next in terms of being able to present actual tangible use cases in having generative AI deployment among federal agencies? I think you're already starting to see conversations around you know, AI deployments, that's been going on for what, like the past five years, just AI machine learning. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. there's some marketing Kung Fu that goes on in there in terms of whether it's actually <laughs> AI versus machine learning. Yeah. Right. So, um, I, I think generative AI is still, it's, that's a tough one to answer in terms of specific use cases. Um, because I think there's this big concern at agencies around, uh, if we open up our internal data, uh, to these models for name your use case that we're opening up, obviously our data to be pulled into these models and then exploited more widely. And so I think right now there's kind of a holding pattern around that, but for AI and machine learning, I mean, I cover DHS as we talked about, and Mm -hmm. they're looking at using kind of machine learning at, you know, customs and border protection to scan uh, cargo that's coming into the United States to more easily identify fentanyl and uh, mm-hmm. just different things that shouldn't be in that cargo, uh, as opposed to having a human kind of just looking at that. And uh, th- they're exploring that area. Uh, that's one specific um, use case that I think you're going to see coming about here. Um, I, I think I think they actually already have a solicitation out in the street that includes that um, aspect of cargo screening. So going away from tangible and a bit more in the theoretical, what ethical challenges are at play here? I mean, yes, we can find different ways of piecing this to uh, to real examples, but there's also a more of an ethical quandary about this overall. And you wrote about it a few weeks ago on how you know there's this promise and a peril of AI overall. Yeah, I mean, there there's so many challenges around ethics, around privacy, around security uh, that folks are, are talking about. I think 
ethically, obviously, federal agencies have to tread lightly, especially in the law enforcement realm when they're handing over, you know, sort of control to an algorithm. Uh, we've seen this with facial recognition, of course, yeah. where there's just a lot of trepidation around using fa facial recognition in the law enforcement community to um, identify potential suspects, to identify, um, you know, even even people coming into the United States and whether they're on a watch list or not. That's that's starting to happen a little bit. Agencies like CBP and TSA, they're starting to do some pilot programs around using facial recognition at checkpoints at the airport. Mm -hmm. And it, an interesting part of this conversation is around, you know, there's privacy concerns, there's ethical concerns. And then the flip side is that this is not just a security tool necessarily. It has to be a security tool. It has to be secure but it's also a convenience thing that they're kind of casting it as you can get through the airport check lane uh, check in lanes faster. Who wouldn't want that? Um, you can you can get through customs faster on the backside. Who wouldn't want that? But that's through the use of facial recognition, which still has a lot of questions and quandaries around it. And I think you're seeing actually DHS being pretty transparent in the sense that they're testing a lot of these algorithms. They're kind of coming out and saying, okay, certain ones work well, certain ones don't work well in these conditions. So I'm hoping that the the agency, DHS as a whole and the agencies underneath it, as they explore not just facial recognition, but AI in general, will continue to be transparent about how they want to use it, about the performance of these algorithms. And that will require some accountability within how these algorithms are designed and how we understand you know, how they work. Are they auditable? Uh, things like that. Yeah, there's been such a significant increase in just the the talk and the, even just the use of the word AI as a buzzword. It's crazy. So it's interesting to see how this will play out um, in the federal landscape. Yeah, I mean, it's sorry. Go ahead. Particularly how it comes to market research. Federal uh, Network was covering that just today uh, in speaking with DHS recently. Uh, how will that impact? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think that's a story that my colleague Jason Miller wrote, yes. and I think I haven't read it, so sorry, Jason, but oh. uh, I will. <laughs> uh, it's it, on the face on the face of it, though. I think the answer to your question is that um, some of these use cases for like you know scanning um, scanning the internet for. Uh, just different, you know, keywords to do market research, to do supply chain security, to understand who's in your supply chain using some flavor of AI and automation. I think you're going to continue to see that, um, you know, just it's hard for humans to kind of poke into every single corner of, you know, a specific market or, you know, yeah. to, to really understand everything that's going on that's out there. But if you can have an algorithm, obviously, scanning all publicly available sources, then you're going to want to do that. And I think you're going to continue to see folks do that in the market research and security uh, kind of realm, the the compliance realm as well. I'm hearing a lot around automating, um, you know, security compliance regimes like FedRAMP and, you know, things like that. Let's pivot to the latter half of what you first threw out on cybersecurity and called it a never-ending story, which I conceived as riding Falcor through the, along the beltway 
talking about uh, the national cybersecurity strategy endlessly. Uh, last month, it finally came to fruition and was released. After months of coverage from your end, diving into the uh, the strategy itself and the directives put forth, where do you see the national cybersecurity strategy going next in terms of implementation? Well, that is the big question right now. They've put out the strategy that espouses some really high-level principles and goals. And so now we're all waiting on this you know, implementation plan to come mm -hmm. out of the Office of the National Cyber Director um, at the White House. They initially said that June was kind of an early right. target for releasing that implementation plan, but might be more like later this summer. But that will answer a lot of questions around, you know, um, what are agencies specifically in charge of doing? That's that's a big, um, you know, question for me in the critical infrastructure realm and raising the bar on on critical infrastructure cybersecurity. You have different agencies that oversee different sectors of critical infrastructure. They've already taken a lot of action over the last couple of years. When you're talking about the TSA pipeline uh, security directives some of the work that the energy department is doing on the electricity sector cybersecurity issue, but what more are they going to do based on the strategy that really calls for kind of raising the bar and imposing some, some form of regulation or requirements on critical infrastructure beyond what we've already seen. And then for federal agencies, you know, we know that they've got the cybersecurity executive order that came out in May 2021. That's driven a lot of action specifically on federal agency cybersecurity already. But as they move into, you know, the buzzword zero trust architecture and uh, continue to try to adopt all those different principles, um, what more will they be doing under this national cyber strategy to really shore up security in the um, federal civilian executive branch. That's that's a big question for me uh, this summer. Where, where are the biggest challenges yet to come? Is it in the implementation itself? Is it in learning how to follow the directives put forth? Is it in the technology that's still needed to get to these proposed success points? Where do you see uh, the like, biggest obstacles remaining? I think, you know, all of the above, really. I think if you talk <laughs> to any agency CIO or CISO, they would say that, you know, it's difficult to, you know, upgrade security. It's difficult to, you know, implement things like multi-factor authentication on a lot of the legacy technology that agencies are still operating in some spaces. And so this whole IT modernization and cybersecurity conversation, uh, conversations, they go hand in hand. Um, yeah. I think, you know, the other big thing is workforce, as we've talked about before, you know, they, there's just all this persistent gap in the cyber workforce across federal agencies and I think you're going to see a cyber workforce strategy actually come out here later this year is the target from, again, the Office of the National Cyber Director. That's a big thing to look out for. Yeah. How big is that gap still? And what do we have to do to actually make some ground toward reaching the other end? Well, I would, uh, if I, I'm, I'm asking that same question to my, my <laughs> friends at the, you know, White House and, uh, you know, the, the, the folks I cover at the White House and at agencies, I think. You know, a couple things that have happened uh, at DHS specifically, they've got this new cyber talent management system and 
that's rolled out a little slower than what they imagined. They wanted to hire, I think about 150 people within the first year. Mm-hmm. And now we're almost two years in and they're just hitting kind of the hundred person mark, but that will help DHS agencies um, by allowing them to kind of go outside of the traditional federal hiring process um, to bring in people at, you know, perhaps a higher salary, more commensurate with their experience, things like that. And then there's this special salary rate that uh, agencies have been developing that have, you know, they've finalized and now OPM kind of needs to, I think, give the uh, marching orders to go forward for all agencies to offer kind of higher salaries for cyber and IT workers. So specifically, I don't know what the gap is in terms of like the open positions across government, but if you look at the CyberScope um, tool that, um, I think I can't remember who funds it, but it's I think it's NIST. Yeah, there's like seven hundred thousand open cyber and IT positions across the uh, the country, and that's that's public and private sector. That's mm-hmm. government yeah. and commercial, but that gives you a sense of how big the gap is. Well, there's a a complex challenge with that, right? The need to skill up fast and the need to skill up smart. How much room for error is there in getting that right? I think, you know, I think you're probably going to see a big emphasis on STEM education in this workforce strategy from what I've uh, heard from the folks who have kind of previewed it that's coming out of the White House. So I guess you would call that kind of skilling up smart. It's more of a long-term thing that's not going to pay off until at least five or 10 years when these kids who are in, you know, you know, whatever level of school start to come into the workforce. And then, I I mean, there is this kind of push though to, there's always this kind of conversation around upskilling, around taking the folks that you have now and, uh, you know, kind of training them on, on different aspects of like more modern technologies like cloud, um, I think you saw recently that DHS is, you know, considering the establishment of a DHS IT Academy, um, one to when they bring in folks say, hey, here's how kind of DHS technology works. We're a little bit behind maybe the commercial sector still, but we're trying to catch up and here's all the different ways we use it, but then also to upskill their current workforce. And so I think there's probably a pretty balanced conversation around that, but you know, you're always going to want to solve your problem, I guess, tomorrow rather than five or 10 years down the line. And so those investments tend to be a little bit more near term. Um, But there's there's a balance, I think, to strike there. Speaking of having a balanced conversation, let's see what our listeners had to ask. Christine, what do we have? Yeah, no, good. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. I know um, I'm glad that you are our co-host today since you're uh, very privy to a lot of these, the topics that Justin's covering. Um, but yeah, a couple that our listeners have asked. Um, one is sort of more so about, you know, you're diving into these topics. And I'm sure you have to talk to a lot of uh, resources and different types of people who are experts in their own right on these topics. How do you go about, you know, gathering resources and interviewing people and really diving into these topics? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, I attend a lot of conferences, both in person and virtually to see the government keynote speakers, to see the panel discussions, to 
meet people who are working on these issues at agencies. Uh, they're kind of the primary resource for us at Federal News Network, um, mm -hmm. the CIOs or the 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 administrators, the folks who are kind of controlling and overseeing these programs directly. And then, you know, we cover, you know, congressional actions that might affect federal agencies. So we talk to folks in Congress, um, and folks who are working on the Hill. And, and, you know, probably for your listeners who are, you know, public affairs folks who are, are PR representatives uh, representing different folks in industry, the most valuable source for me typically in industry is a former Fed, uh, mm -hmm. someone who can kind of give you that inside look at, you know, CISA just put out, out this new directive. Um, he, here's a former CISA official explaining, you know, how that might've come together, why it's important. That's a, that's a strong perspective um, to come from. And being able to talk to those folks, obviously they have a little bit more leeway because they're no longer in government and they yeah. can explain sure. the ins and outs. They don't have to go through some lengthy process just to, to be approved to talk to the media. So those former feds are um, really strong uh, sources for me. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, how do you prefer to be pitched those types of experts? <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, I'm sure uh, your listeners have heard this before. I, uh, I don't really pay attention to product pitches, um, yeah. even if there is like a former Fed attached to it. Uh, you know, I, I might kind of take note of that and be like, oh, this person could be interesting to talk to. But I, I just honestly don't write about products or services that contractors or companies are offering. Um, you know, I might write about the one-off contract every now and then, but that really depends on kind of the um, this combination of kind of the size of the contract, the importance to the agency, and the maybe uniqueness of what it is, um, if that makes sense. But mm -hmm. again, that's, that's kind of a one-off. So I prefer to be pitched just, you know, someone who's clearly kind of read my work, even if it's just one or, one or two stories, just kind of, hey, saw you cover this recently. I think I have someone who could offer an interesting perspective on that issue. Um, is someone who, again, is maybe a former Fed, but even if not, um, explain what that perspective might be. And it, it you know, it, it can't really be tied to, you know, the specific company that they work for or anything like that. Um, more just interested in what they have to say about this policy or a new program that's coming out of government. Um, so, if you can, if you can kind of demonstrate that you've read some of like the past work or what we do, you know, what we do at FNN, I'll always appreciate that. And if you have a former fed who can talk about something that they maybe have worked on in the past or have a good perspective on, I love that as well. Yeah. Very fair. Love that. Yeah. And I think that would be helpful. Absolutely. This other question, I, I think we, we definitely talked about the first half of it, but I'm curious as to the second half. So the question is, what do you think are the three most compelling topics in the federal market for the next 18 months? I think we covered a lot of those. Um, but, you know, what are you tired of hearing about? <laughs> That's <laughs> a great question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, first and foremost... CMMC, uh, you know, that's just become <laughs> such a long drawn out program. I get a lot of pitches on that and most of them aren't very interesting or pertinent. Unfortunately, I, I mean, it's, I know it's, you've got a lot of companies that are interested in kind of playing in that space and they want to get their names out there, but 
I'm more just interested in developments with the program as they, as they come out to this mm-hmm. long drawn out program. And um, yeah, I, I just get way too many pitches about CMMC. So if you can kind of, if you have a pitch on CMMC, just try to think about, you know, not interested in talking to your person who's going to just say why comply, why CMMC is important. Everybody knows why CMMC is important at this point. Um, maybe if they can offer an interesting perspective on like, oh, this, you know, we're still waiting for the rule, but there's this new interesting kind of data point out there about, you know, defense industrial based cybersecurity. That's, that's kind of interesting. Like there's a gap there, or, you know, I don't know, something along those lines beyond just why CMMC is important. We all know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing is, is zero trust. Um, that's is. a tough there one because yeah, yeah. You know, I think just talking about zero trust for zero trust sake as a concept is, is tired at this point. Everybody kind of knows what it is generally. Um, they know, you know, why the, the federal government is adopting again, why it's important. Um, and I think, at this point, the interesting thing about zero trust is probably the different use cases that are happening at federal agencies. Um, you know, what kind of struggles agencies might be having in, in that specific space. But again, you know, we write, we hear so much about it. It's I'm probably not going to write a story just solely based around someone reaching out and saying, "Hey, there's this new zero trust product." Uh, I definitely mm-hmm. am not going to do that. Um, it, it, but if you have someone who and this is a rule across all topics if you if you don't expect if if you can come in without me expecting me to write kind of like an initial story just talking to someone excuse me who's interesting who has an interesting perspective on the federal government's adoption of something like zero trust i'm happy to talk to them for 10 15 minutes um and just kind of develop that relationship to go forward, not, not necessarily just do a one-off story on a company or product in that space. Certainly. That's great. Yeah, that's fair. The relationship building really is, is more important to you to get off the ground. Is that right? I think that's huge. Um, that that's, that's really the main thing. And, you know, like I said, CISA and different agencies are publishing these new cybersecurity policies all the time. These just different programs are coming out all the time. They put out a press release, but then they don't say much else. Hmm. It's an interesting to have a different voice in there to maybe offer some analysis on it. And that's how I develop that relationship and, and get those sources is, you know, being able to talk to someone um, consistently about those topics. Mm-hmm. It's critical. Yeah. Well, I think we could, we could definitely talk to you all day, Justin, but let's, I think we have time for one more question. Jason, do you have something pressing you'd like to ask? In fact, I do. And it comes from a survey that your editorial staff recently posed um, with regard to return to work and the policies that will be implemented or change for federal employees. That survey closed a few weeks ago and is set to be released soon. Keep an eye out for a very engaging survey from Federal News Network on the horizon. But I want to see how you felt about this in particular. Because you, when you joined Federal News Network, it was the height of COVID, and you were still very much, if not completely, remote. Now that it has evolved into a hybrid structure and then gone a bit more into a, a staggered return, how has that impacted your reporting and your relationship even among your colleagues? So much 
collaboration and creativity cultivated in the newsroom. How has it changed your profession? Yeah, we've had a lot of conversations about this at Federal News Network. Um, you know, yeah, th when I first started in 2021, I was um, actually going into the office for training, but most other people weren't there uh, almost at all. Um, you know, it, it's it's been good to have the flexibility. Um, we have we do we have the radio side, obviously, but we have all this equipment so that we can totally do that remote. And in fact, we have some people who are fully remote in different parts of the country for various reasons uh, who are who work at FNN. Um, and so, yeah, having the flexibility to kind of do a lot of this from home to cover events from home, because so many events have shifted to kind of a hybrid or totally virtual format. That's been fantastic. It allows you to cover a lot more to not waste so much time going to and fro um, all, all, all the things you hear about a lot. And so thankfully our company has been pretty flexible. Like if you can get your job done from home, you can stay at home. There's no mandate to come into the office. Um, but at the same time, we have a, a pretty good studio. We have a good, uh, you know, video. Um, we, we have, we have an actual studio where we shoot some of the events that we host, some of like the exchanges and, uh, we find that. Yeah, guests love coming into that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really is great to do those one-on-one -on -one or panel interviews in person as opposed to over Zoom, uh, just because you get to have those conversations, um, kind of build relationships on the side, and it's just a little bit more personable in general. And then collaborating with coworkers, we have been kind of doing these kind of monthly or so uh, just meetings where we all come in to talk about stories we're working on, just general challenges that we're facing. Um, and, you know, in journalism, it's really important to collaborate with your colleagues because, because obviously uh, you can come together with a stronger set of sources for a stronger so story. You yeah. can come up with better ideas like, hey, I noticed this thing is happening in one part of government. And you're, you know, someone else can be like, oh, yeah, this this is happening over here. Um, you should think about that. And those types of organic conversations obviously can't as easily happen over Slack or in your kind of weekly Zoom meeting. Um, yeah. So I would say that we've hit a really nice balance that we're constantly striving to strike going forward on flexibility to work from home. It's it's great. It's I can't imagine ever going back to before COVID, but also building opportunities to come together and collaborate, kind of in office, and just you know get to know each other better. And and uh, yeah, it's great to see your coworkers in person every now and then, as, as I'm sure you guys can appreciate. <laughs> yes, definitely. And keep an eye out for that survey to be released by FNN in the coming weeks. Should have some really interesting data to dive through. Justin, we can't thank you enough for joining us here today. It's been a fascinating conversation and a great in-depth look at your career, your history, and the way you view public sector. Christine, I want to thank you for letting me join you to go inside the media mind with Justin Doubleday. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad thank that you were able to join as a, as a co-host, Jason. It was fun. And Justin, seriously, thank you so much. It was so insightful to hear from you and about your background and some of these topics that you're covering. Uh, no, I really appreciate the time, guys. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think you have a great podcast here. It's uh, really cool to hear from some of my fellow reporting colleagues about how they think about things as well. Um, so th thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. And thank you for everyone who tuned into this episode of Inside the Media Minds. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us in today's episode of Inside the Media Minds. To learn more about our podcast and hear all of our episodes, please visit us at w2com.com slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Media Mind Show. And you can subscribe anywhere podcasts are found.